Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to this edition of the Feeling Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me ready to play the Otis to my Lex Luthor is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. The heck I am. First of all, we're not starting this podcast like that. I am not, You want to be, be Miss Tessmacher? I mean, that's fine, too. I'll be <laughs> your Lois to your Clark. How about that? Okay, that's fine. That's <laughs> slightly weird. That's okay. very that's, your, that's The Jimmy to your Clark. Can, I, can, we, can we go there? Sure, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, just don't make me Otis, man. Is literally my least favorite character in this entire movie. Mr. Luthor. Mr. Oh, stop. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Well, if you haven't already guessed, this week we continue our Batman v Superman celebration by covering the first of three films centering on the Blue Boy Scout himself, Superman, beginning with Richard Donner's entry, appropriately called Superman. And in some circles, it's called Superman the Movie, depending on the artwork that you choose for your podcasts or whatever. In other places, it's called Superman. So because, you know, you didn't know there was going to be a sequel or a third or unfortunately a fourth. <clears throat> Excuse me. But anyway. Before we fly into spoiler-filled territory, let's talk one-word takeaways. Aaron, what you got? Well, I have not seen this film in a very long time. Now, I know that I have seen it. I know that I've seen Superman 2, and I think I've seen Superman 3. One of them has to do with nuclear missiles. Which one is that? Well, I guess they kind of... That would be... Well, they all, all do, do, but one centers around nuclear missiles. And space. And that, would super, that would be Superman 4, actually. Oh, I, okay. Peace. So then I've seen them all... Uh, but I was like literally a kid. I mean, I'm talking like pre-teenage yeah. kid. And so I remember very, very little about anything. And I just want to give that context now. So for me, this was almost like a first watch because as an adult uh, and with a discerning palate, uh, I had not taken this movie in. My one more takeaway is defining. This is often considered the first major superhero movie, and I know that there were more technically before it, but from a bombastic perspective, this is the first in of, of a line of how superhero movies would become. And I think it's very obvious that it was riding high on the sci-fi craze that Star Wars Mania had brought, uh, including the opening credits, which immediately I was like, what is happening right now with these opening credits? They were and very expensive to do, by the way. Were they? Back <laughs> yeah, in the... Yeah. Interesting. Pretty, pretty expensive title sequence. Well, I don't know that it was worth it, but okay. okay. Uh, you know, anyway, uh, you know, what what is important to me past seeing the influence of the Galactic Saga in this movie is what stands out now, watching it in 2020, is that Donner's film was for the genre that we know and love today definitive and this has it all patrick it has the origin story it has the romance it has some low stakes crime fighting and then it has some incredibly major acts of heroism that save countless lives thousands upon thousands in an entire state i guess we could say it's epic in scope and i definitely had not remembered it being that way we were joking before we got on the air here about how it, neither one of us remembered it being two and a half plus hours. That was wild. And so many of the tropes that we frequently see got their start here. And it also defined 
who Clark Kent and Superman were going to be for a generation. So for a film universe, this is like the equivalent of a Robert Downey Jr. performance as Iron Man and what it did for the MCU in the last decade. It took a character that people were familiar with, gave it a face, gave it a voice, and said, this is who Superman is. And to this day, Patrick, I think it's pretty well considered that most people relate their Superman to what Christopher Reeves put on the screen during these films and during this run. And so it is incredibly impactful, uh, very defining. And, and so I, I really respected it and enjoyed seeing it with that lens here in 2020. Yeah. And, and my thoughts are similar. My word was template. I almost wanted to say Kurosawa because as I was watching this as a 41 year old, I obviously am not ashamed to say how much I love Superman. And I'm not an apologist for movies that don't live up to my expectations necessarily. But I know that Superman as a franchise is a dated franchise. I have no problem admitting that. I think that to ask the question, does it hold up? Subjectively, I would say yes, because I love the character. Christopher Reeve is a fantastic Superman, and we'll get into why. But I chose template because of the exact same reasons that you mentioned, that when you watch an Iron Man or a Captain America or a Wonder Woman, you have all of those different elements. You have the things that we are used to seeing in an MCU movie, origin story, small stakes, romance, big villain. Subjectively speaking, big, you know, depending on how you define the villain. And then ultimately kind of a rounded out conclusion that would set itself up for a sequel or not, depending on what the universe is doing at the time. Obviously, Iron Man kicked it off for the MCU. I would be curious to know if in a world, in a world, in a world where you have a heightened character like Superman, would there have ever been an idea of creating a universe around him? don't know. I don't know a lot of history when it comes to Hollywood in the late 1970s. What I do know is that the Superman franchise lived and died by Christopher Reeve's performance as both Clark and Kal-El. And I think watching these again is at the very least going to be an experience in understanding the difficulty at the very least of telling a Superman story. Because the love-hate relationship I have with Superman is that it's really, really difficult to tell a complete story that feels satisfying because he is almost untouchable as a character, as a property, and it's difficult to really kind of say, yeah, I relate to him because X. <laughs> well, you don't because he's an alien. And unless you're from another planet or have superpowers or are weakened by green rocks that are hanging over your your neck you're probably not going to connect with this guy but what i think donner does in this first entry is he gives us a hint of the fact that superman as a property as a character wants to feel human because that i think is a character trait of superman an alien who wants to belong but knows that he can't fully because he's not fully human and that's something that kind of is threaded through this movie and the next, this isn't really spoilery, it's just kind of food for thought at this point. But 
I think that's what I appreciate most about these first two entries is the fact that care is taken with the elements of his character that can be complex. And the truth is they don't go very deep. We're not talking a Christopher Nolan Batman experience. As we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, I think Snyder hits this pretty deeply in some ways, and we'll have our own criticisms for it as well. But what we're going to find out is that there are a vast amount of similarities in terms of what's trying to be captured with this character in all three of these entries. So I'm excited to talk about it. And um, at the very least, I think it's going to be fun to talk about how Gene Hackman refused to shave his head for this role and chose to <laughs> wear his hair different ways. In order I did to show not that. know that. I yeah, did not did know not, that's why they're not going to shave his head. <laughs> <laughs> so he went with a closet full of different wigs instead, huh? Well, he didn't do, he just styled it differently in every scene to indicate that he was wearing a different wig. Interesting. Anyway. All right. From this point on, we're going to be very spoilery. This is a movie. 1978 was its release date. If you have HBO Max, it along with the other entries are there. So feel free to spend two and a half hours and then come back and join us for the conversation. Otherwise, here we go, man. The opening third of the movie, <laughs> the opening third of the movie. This is so funny. When I typed this out, I was like, oh, my gosh. It spends a lot of time focusing on pre-Superman stuff. You know, Krypton's destruction, Cal landing on Earth, Clark's teenage life, and Jonathan Kent's death. What is it about this that you think Donner wanted to do by spending so much time here and kind of giving us a long tease before we actually got to seeing Superman. I think that's exactly what you just said. <laughs> uh, he wanted to tell us the origin story and he wanted to tease us and get us excited, get us ready. Let us connect with the history of Clark Kent so that we understand who he is once he becomes an adult so that we can understand his motivations. Because if you don't understand the character motivations, then it's really not going to be able for you to connect with a deeper story once that person is in their superhero mode. I mean, we just talked about this and went through the Batman films in Nolan's trilogy, and that's exactly what we needed to see there as well. And so I think this was the first time Superman was adapted for the big screen in this way, so it, it makes absolute sense that there would be an origin story here. I've read reviews talking about cut the first 45 minutes like we even people back then knew the origin story and you didn't need it if you put super if you just started the film at the daily planet like people would know what was going on and that may be true but i think that there's value in it unfortunately i think this is one of the areas where it has aged the worst so i, I don't have a problem with it existing to be honest with you, like I don't mind an epic superhero epics. Good. I mean, my goodness, Patrick, we've been sitting through three hour movies in the Avengers Infinity War and Endgame and we love them. Right. So when done right. And same thing with Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. They're they're long movies. But what problematic in this is that you start with the banishing of Zod and his uh, lackeys, Ursa, I think, and somebody else. I don't know the third guy. Non. And, non. His name's Non. Seriously? Yes. Like, yeah. like no? Like, Non? 
don't know. Come on now. Okay. <laughs> um, so we start with them getting banished. And, and I actually, you know, I don't mind it that much because it makes sense. The problem is that we, it tries to get into a little bit of deeper, I think a nod, if I could combine non and Zod, to what is going to be in the second movie at this portion of the film where we are getting to know Zod and the conflict between he and Jor-El and the council. And because it goes a little deep into that, you, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like if we just witnessed these three rebels and we didn't really get to know them and they were just, okay, these three rebels tried to rebel. They got cast out and then the planet blew up, yada, yada. That's, I think it just went a little bit too much there, frankly. The other problem with it, though, is the CGI for me with Clark. And having watched Smallville, having watched Man of Steel, it's really difficult to go back and watch this kid try and run next to a train. Like, I literally was laughing my butt off at this scene, Patrick. I mean, it is horrendous CGI at the time. Like, it's basically like somebody cut and paste his waist up and then put it on like a pinwheel and filmed a pinwheel with legs on it moving next to a train and like his like cut and paste <laughs> torso was like on top. It's terrible. And I get it. Like it, it's hard to watch now, but thematically it's all what it needs to be. We see the strength. We see him kick a football a million miles. We see him struggle as a teenager with being an outsider and talk to his parents about how hard it would be this is one of the things that i resonate with with superman patrick because heroes like him heroes like spider-man we get to see this in his story as well you can't participate in things you always want to participate in because you're too powerful and that i can't imagine like from an internal perspective that would be very frustrating so i enjoyed getting to watch that part of clark's development it does play like a greatest hits of the origin story like it hits all of the beats, but I think that's because I'm just become so used to them. Like I know them now. I don't think I would have known them at the time. And so I'm trying hard when I'm watching this to take myself out of that and say, if I didn't know this origin story at all, do I need each element of this story? I think I do. I think I do. And so ultimately I land in the camp of like, I'm fine with that 45 minutes being there because I think it sets up an important beginning. Now, what I will say is it becomes a lot less important if this is just one movie. Because it gets extended out and we get to explore this character further through three more after the first, it has much more value. I think that if this was a standalone movie, I would view it a little more harshly because I would feel like we didn't get to go in depth into Clark as much as maybe we needed to to make that worth it. Um, and I have one more quick question for you about this before you give me your thoughts and you can address this for me. Why is there a Kryptonian thing when he makes the Fortress of Solitude, which is awesome, by the way. I love again, seeing how he makes the Fortress of Solitude in this movie. But there's like this crystal, but it's it's got like green kryptonite and, and he like picks it up and he like it's yeah. fine. It's completely fine. Why is it completely fine? So, because kryptonite is residual like radioactive debris from an exploded krypton this crystal had the knowledge of krypton it was essentially like a time capsule for him 
Mm. Why it glowed green, I think, because part of Krypton's biology as a planet was probably green. So it wasn't kryptonite. It wasn't residual debris from an exploded planet. It was what Jarrell put into that crystal that said, this is what you're going to know about your ancestry. This is what, when you're when the time is right, you're going to need this. You're going to discover it. And it's going to eventually become what we see on the screen, which is okay. that whole like life college lesson that he learns. And this is where I think the 45 minutes add value. Go ahead. Sorry, one more thing. I I know I don't, I don't okay. want to steal all your thunder, but the one other thing that I really love about the opening forty five minutes is the dialogue. I love dialogue in movies. I'm much more all about the words than I am the action and the visuals. The visuals are great, but I need the words. And the opening forty five minutes is where we get the most out of the dialogue in this entire film because we get the comments from Jorel where he's talking to Clark. Well, I guess Cal as he's sending him away. And we get all of the Christological references here with you will travel far, my little Kal-El, and, you know, you will see my life through your eyes and the son becomes the father and the father, the son. I really like all that stuff. The warning, it is forbidden for you to interfere with human history, which will govern Clark's decision making for a long period of time, like how he will struggle with that. The comment about to his dad where his where Jonathan tells him you are here for a reason and it's not to score touchdowns and just the idea of a parent explaining that to a child in any capacity much less a human to an alien with superpowers um and I love Clark's comeback at one point to one of the conversations about him playing sports he says is it showing off if someone does something they're capable of is it showing off when the bird flies? I love that line. I loved it because he's right. Like how, why is he being held back? Right. And, and I get the internal struggle. So I think the dialogue is really fantastic in this opening section personally. Well, and I agree with you. I think the 45 minutes that we see of this origin story is the greatest hits. It's a highlight reel. And where I think it lends itself best is in a TV show like Smallville where the questions that Clark asks can be fleshed out over the course of 22 episodes. And all those ideas that Donner throws into that first section get fleshed out in other iterations of Superman. And this is where I, if I was in Donner's shoes, I would probably do the same thing. Because if given the opportunity to do a story about the Man of Steel, I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to include as much as I can. Where I think the flaw is, is that a lot like the idea with Zack Snyder's directorial style is that he includes so much that if you start cutting things, which you're prone to do because movies should not be four and a half hours in theaters, you lose nuance. You lose the touch that as a director he wants to to give and that makes it difficult and that to me is a discipline we talked about this on the watchman episode it's a discipline that i think a great director has good directors struggle with it and bad directors don't care and i think zach center subjectively is a good director i think richard donner is a good director because what i see here aaron is i enjoy seeing my superhero idol have his life played out on screen. And I've said this time and time again when we talk about this character, Clark Kent matters just as much as Superman. That's what I love about this first section, is the fact that we see all of the motives, all the agency 
on Clark for struggling with this set of abilities that he has, this way in which he feels different than other people because he can't be like the bird who flies naturally. And then it culminates to what I think is probably one of the great scenes in the movie, which is hearing Jarrell walk him through life on Krypton, what it was like giving him this kind of ethical lecture, this ethical lesson and saying, by the time you finish this, 12 of your, of your earth years will have passed. I can't remember what the actual number is. And then of course we get at that moment, I think 45 minutes in, 48 minutes in, here comes Superman, here comes Christopher Reeve. And that's a great reveal. I think that was probably the, the best moment of the movie for me. It wasn't my connecting point, but I think theatrically that to me made the movie wonderful. That's the moment that I remember even from my childhood is like not just the reveal of Superman, but the stuff that came before it and everything that kind of came along because as he's learning about life on Krypton and what it means to be an alien living on this planet, so are we. And so we're following along with his, roots and his ethics and we're like okay if we're smart audience if we're a smart audience what we're going to do is probably find out okay is he going to interfere how is he going to do that and what will be the consequences of it which of course play themselves out because he's challenged with it now where i think the big problem is for me is that this is a movie built in 1978 with 1978 technology and there's only so much you can do and you're right. The train sequence is hokey, <laughs> borderline campy. And this is a real problem because tone matters. And we've mentioned this on a handful of uh, episodes when we're talking about a movie that takes a tonal shift, it would seem, because we get drama and then we get a switch 48 minutes into the movie. And now we see Superman in his red and blue glory. And he's saving cats from trees and he's catching women off of <laughs> skyscrapers. And now we're into the comic book world. We're into the, oh, yeah, this is the Superman I know and love. And so that that is a struggle for me because the 2020 patch is looking back on the eight year old and he's saying, have more respect for that character, dude. Don't settle for that. Don't settle for a two and a half hour long movie that goes from one thing to another. And so I struggle with it. I honestly struggle with it. This is not my favorite Superman movie by a long shot, but I respect it. And and just like what Kurosawa did for The Magnificent Seven, I think the Donner edition of this movie really kind of helped me appreciate the fact that these parts of a character's story need to be told so that we can actually appreciate the characters more, whether it's Iron Man or Captain America or the Incredible Hulk, for that matter, or Batman or Spider-Man. Superheroes, whether they're grounded or whether they're in flight, they need a way to connect to their audience. And over the course of the rest of the movie, I think we're entertained more than we're educated and more than we're connected. But I think that entertainment value is okay. And I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to accept the kind of not dumbed down 
perspective, but the less intense perspective, the less nuanced perspective. And really, Aaron, that starts with Christopher Reeve as an actor and being able to hold Clark Kent and Superman in the same hand and portray both of them in a way that I feel is a very honest portrayal of both characters. Now, I wanted to know from his performance, how do you feel like he handled both sides of that? I mean, I think he's phenomenal and there's a good reason why he's held in such high regard because he manages to be different as both sides of the characters. And and that's the most important thing. It's just like my favorite Batman. Like we need to see Bruce Wayne be different than Batman. And when we see Clark Kent in all of his goofy silliness his awkwardness he is nothing like the absolute just completely in control superman that we see and we're introduced to for the very first time it's classic superman stuff where a robber comes up and lois ends up saving clark from robber with a gun and that's a lot of fun and i think that it's also a lot of fun watching Lois ponder why Clark seems to know things like exactly what's in her purse. You know, like I love that nod because I, that's, that's a comic thing. Like you're acknowledging the truth of the situation. And I think that's what you need to do when you're a comic book movie. This isn't some mystery we're trying to solve. Like we all know the audience is in on it. We know it's Superman. You know what I mean? Like we want the characters to have some of that reasoning, but the way that he spouts off one-liners is fantastic for me uh you know superman's not necessarily known as a one-liner kind of guy and so they're not necessarily funny but they're like confirmational i guess i don't know like one of his ones that i really enjoyed is after he saves lois from the helicopter and he says statistically speaking it's still the safest way to travel I mean, it sounds like an infomercial or something like it's not like a one liner like a Spider-Man would give you. Right. And then there's, you know, the guy standing on the side of the building says, hey, there's something wrong with the elevator going down. And it's just it's it's like not funny, but it's funny (laughs) because it's so not funny. And I love how when he's Superman, he is the epitome of the nice guy. Still, he says bye to everybody, Patrick. (laughs) He like everybody's like, he like finishes saving Lois and stuff. And he's like, bye. And he flies off and he he does it like multiple times to multiple people. He he literally says bye. And I'm just like, who does that? No one does that. Right. But he does. And then when he's Clark, he's the bumbling guy, you know, and it works for me. I think it works really, really well. I enjoy the difference in how he plays the characters. And I think so much of it is in his facial expressions. Um, obviously, styling the hair different gives him a different look, but the way he carries himself, his posture, his body language, it just makes him look different. And I think there's something in Christopher Reeve's performance that If you are looking in his eyes when he's Clark, you can be watching him give a performance that is silly and just, you know, nerdy and everything that Superman is not. But you can see in his eyes that he's still 
Clark Kent Superman. Like you can see the, I don't know how to put it, but like it's, he's there, he's in there, but you're watching him almost acting as he's acting. And it's so brilliantly done. I just, I was really, really impressed with his performance as both personally. And I did not expect to be. So that was a welcome surprise for me. There was a piece of trivia that I was reading about where he was walking around set in his costume, his Superman costume, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, look, it's Superman, and blah, 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 blah. And I think he went into a trailer or went somewhere and changed into his Clark Kent outfit, complete with glasses and hat. And the rumor, I guess the story goes that nobody recognized him. They didn't make the, they didn't see him any differently, or they didn't see him as, oh, look, Christopher Reeves has changed into his Clark Kent outfit. Now, maybe it was a couple hours in the past, I don't know, but... That says a lot because of the fact that, as you said, we're in on the joke. We know who he is. And so it's funny to hear him make these little comments about himself or about his capabilities. And I, I, lo- I, lo- I think that scene with the, with the robber is, is great because all of this stuff, Aaron, it's classic Golden Age or is it Silver Age. It's classic 1930s Superman. This is where I think the very beginning is really important, where you have the kid who is reading from a 1930s comic book. I think it's action comics. I can't recall, but it's a, it's a Superman comic. And I think what Donner is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to tell the story of this Superman. Now, granted, this is 1978. Comic books were obviously they were they're fairly popular. I think they kind of died off in the late 80s, early 90s before they had a resurgence. But the Superman that we know, we as a populace, is the Superman of the action comics, the one that's holding up the car in action comics, number one. And there's not a lot of, quote, depth to him. So when we get to this point, what I see theatrically or thematically is the sandwich. You have drama and then comic book comedy action and then drama. And again, as an, it, it is hard to watch, but this section, this middle section is my favorite because in an age where myself included, we want our superhero serious. We want to be able to feel, we want to be able to have dramatic caring for of these characters. Donner's saying, nope, this is a superhero that people love and we're going to let him rescue cats from trees we're going to let him spin super spin down into a tunnel to go get what would become his arch nemesis you know get into his lair these are things that are very comfortable for me to see because it's like we don't get this lightheartedness it doesn't border on like 1966 batman camp in that it's very self-aware but it's almost a tribute to that kind of superhero so when we get essentially the superhero dad jokes that he's telling, both as Clark and Superman, what we're experiencing, I think, is that idea of this is what it was like to read those comic books. Because as a kid, you're reading these, you want adventure more than anything else. You don't really care about the depth of Clark's emotion when he lost his foster father. That's important to me personally. And... I think it's a fantastic part of his origin story. But what Donner does really effectively is that he takes the Superman character and he essentially gives the people what they want. And this is what people want to see. And I think one of the taglines before this movie came out was, you'll believe a man can fly. Mm -hmm. 
and special effects be damned you know this was something that was pretty amazing back in the late 70s to see a guy yeah. who didn't look like he was on wires yeah that part holds up pretty well and and the nationalization of him i think is another thing that like is really old era comics that shines through mm-hmm. he is a nationalized hero lois is interviewing him at one point and he she asks him what he's here for or whatever and he says i'm here to fight for truth and justice in the american way and i just i cringed because like that's exactly what captain america does as well i mean they're the same kind of concept on different brands and he you know talks about how he doesn't smoke right and then he you know he makes the joke the dad joke i guess he's like i never i never drink when i fly which that was that was pretty funny i laughed really hard at that um and she asked him about lying or you know is he telling the truth or something she's like do you always tell the truth and he was like lois i never lie and like you are under you're really learning about these boy scout traits though the american hero the boy scout the epitome of what we want to be standing up for us and represent us and fight for the, us as a country. And that's what the Superman that we get is, of course, which yeah. is going to be deconstructed later by Zack Snyder. Sure. But this is the era, and that's, like you said, that's the Superman that we saw in the comics, and that's what they put on screen, of course. And, you know, the there was an argument in doing some research for the movie, uh, for the show tonight. I was looking at some of the criticism with that one line, I never lie. Someone could argue, yes, you do. Every day you lie because you're Superman. And I would argue against that because I think there's a duality of both Clark and Superman that you can be both and not be deceiving from one or the other. I think Richard Donner has a messiah complex with this character. I think in a lot of ways, Superman's uh, Reeves performance as Superman and Clark serves as in some ways son of God, son of man kind of thing. I don't think he's doing that deliberately, but I think that there is very much an element of that that is more obvious than others, which can be a serious turnoff for a large audience. And I get that completely. And in some ways, it frustrates me because, again, that makes a character unapproachable. This is why I think Clark Kent is so essential, because I don't think he's playing Clark. I think Christopher Reeve is embodying both of these characters. And what you mentioned earlier about how you look into his facial expressions and you can see it in his eyes that he's not portraying one or the other. He is being himself. He's being Kal-El is what he's being. And Kal-El for the moment might look like Clark Kent. And for another moment, it might look like Superman. Superheroes or superpowers, you know, notwithstanding, he is honest about who he is. And there's a level of protection that he has to make by putting on the Clark Kent suit. And there are other times when he has to put on the Superman suit. And I think what makes his performance so riveting is the fact that he does both so convincingly. And I fell in love with his Clark Kent character equally as much as his Superman character because of the fact that they look so different from each other. You mentioned that the posture he takes is you don't see it until a moment. And that's my connecting point just to spoil that, that I'll explain more later, but there is a posture that he takes that is distinctly different from Superman and Clark. And I think it's really important. It goes beyond the glasses because of what it's saying about both of these characters. And I don't know that I would ever want to see anybody else 
play this 1970s superhero except Christopher Reed. I hate the fact that he probably <laughs> lived most of his life with that stigma. Oh, it's Superman. Oh, it's Superman. Because we know, based on the Robin Williams doc that we covered, that he was a classically trained actor. I mean, he had a career. And the thing about Christopher Reeve is that what he brought to those two characters was a sensibility. He brought a light touch. He brought a delicacy to both of these characters that make them both very appealing. Superman's appealing, yes, because he does heroic things. But Clark is appealing because he can blend in with the crowd, but he can have a conversation with anyone he wants, but he chooses not to. Like he, I don't know, it, it's so interesting to watch these two sides of Christopher Reeve. And I would dare say that as much as I love Henry Cavill, I think Christopher Reeve pulls off that duality better than, than anyone, in my opinion. And, and I, you know, Henry Cavill's not Superman, but if you're going to talk about a complete Superman Clark character, yeah, it's going to be Christopher Reeve for me. And I think that that's what really pushes the middle of this movie forward is we get to see all that in action, mm -hmm. both in comic book ways, as well as in these small little moments. One being specifically with his relationship with Lois Lane. Every superhero story, origin story has to have a love interest. I guess it doesn't have to, but I guess it helps. And this one is no different. There's a slight spoiler. Their relationship does become a focal point of the second film. And Margot Kidder plays Lois Lane here. So I wondered, did you enjoy the chemistry and the way that Donner progressed their relationship between the two of them? Yes. He did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... My connecting point is Lois and Clark related, so I'm going to save some stuff really to talk about then, but okay. the short answer is yes. I really enjoyed the relationship, and this is always going to make or break a Superman story for me personally, because I'm just not as interested in the character's superpowers as much as others, and so I love watching him, whether it's Smallville or Man of Steel or whatever, or this movie clark and interact with lois and have to play this game i love how you put it kal-el he's kal-el and he's wearing clark or wearing superman at the time but he's kal-el always i love that and he is trying to get through this and you, you know the clear flirtation with her the interest and ultimately the ability to put on a mask and put your best foot forward when you're superman and be what you think she wants and needs when in reality of course it will always come to light that she also wants and needs you as clark even though you don't realize that at the time uh, and i think it's set up beautifully here i'm glad to hear that it's going to be explored further that's definitely what i want i think she's a really good lois she fits the bill she's uh, she's classic age Lois. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to, it's really difficult to compare these characters and I don't, I don't want to get into that battle over and over where it's, sure. is it this Lois versus that Lois or this yeah. Superman versus that Superman? Because these are so different. It's like comparing Adam West to, uh, Chris, uh, Christian Bale. Like you can't, they're, they're in different movies. <laughs> they're in completely yeah. different universes. Right. Yeah. I think this Lois fits this story and this Clark perfectly. Never heard of Mario Kidder before this. And, 
I don't know that I really have seen anything else she's been in or would care, but I think she's really fantastic. And the way that their relationship is portrayed here was a highlight for me in that middle section of the film, which I will say, as you did earlier, is also my favorite part of the movie. Yeah, it. I, I don't really like Margot Kidder as an actor, but I think she's fantastic as Lois. And I think it, it's the way in which she brings that hard-nosed reporter that Lois is, always going after a story. And I will say this, that uh, of the different iterations, just subjected, my favorite iteration of the Clark and Lois is the Smallville uh, iteration. But what all the Loises bring, and starting with Kidder's performance, is the sense of confidence with a few flaws here and there. She carries herself so well. I think early on in the movie, when we get introduced to her, she's talking to Jimmy Olsen. And he's like, Miss Lane, how do you get all the great stories? And she basically says, it's not about getting the great stories. It's about being a great reporter and finding them or writing about them. And in that same breath, she's like, how do you spell what? You know, so she's got, she has no sense of the, I mean, she's the basics. Yeah, she can write, but there's still flaws there. Like, how do you, you know, how many she O's? She can't in, spell. She can't spell. She can't spell certain. crazy. I know. I know. And I thought about you when I was watching this. I was like, Aaron would go nuts. If he were Jimmy Olsen, he would hit her with his camera. I would be responding very snarkily, just like Jimmy did. <laughs> like, come on, girl. Yeah, come on. Yeah. Google. But the fact. Yeah, Google in 1978. What was that? <laughs> that was Ask Jimmy. Is that where Ask Jeeves came from? Ask Jimmy. Ask Jimmy. That's Jimmy, yeah. So I, I watch her and I see this relationship with her and Clark start budding. And I, <laughs> what's fun is just watching almost like this crush start with him that doesn't feel fake at all. It's like, wow, she's amazing. Because look, from this universe, what girls has he known? He's known Lana, he's known his mom, both of which are somewhat important to him his mom especially and so he meets this woman who challenges him from the get-go and he's like wow that's a very attractive thing because look if you're an alien and you're trying to connect with people and be human i don't know who you would want to surround yourself with so he comes from a place where he could have been all that and we assume that because he's gotten a job at the daily planet that he's a good reporter but now he's around this woman who to him is physically attractive and also intellectually attractive i think it starts the ball rolling in really budding their relationship in a way that feels pretty natural and I really liked seeing how it played out, and I I enjoy seeing what happens in the second film. So it'll be fun to talk about that. We also get the arrival of Gene Hackman's portrayal of Lex Luthor, who is probably outside of Brainiac, probably the most famous of Superman's villains, and. I watch his performance, and I think Gene Hackman is a great actor. I love seeing him 
in movies like Hoosiers, in Crimson Tide. I think he plays just this great, gritty person, whether it's a villain or a hero, you know, protagonist, antagonist. And I think Donner's casting of him was a really solid choice because of the fact that what he brings is not like a dominating like screen presence, but he does kind of steal the scenes that he's in. Some of my favorite scenes are really very few and far between with him and Superman, particularly when he's kind of playing this chess game, this mind game with him after he, after Superman comes down into his lair. And I'm sad that in this, we don't get to see kind of Superman go through all the, the puzzle pieces of getting into the, uh, the fortress of Luther, as you want to call it. But what I like about it is the fact that Lex sees him as a challenge. He doesn't see him as a threat. He doesn't see him as something that can be just thrown away. He sees the value of who Superman is, and he's like, let's go, your move. And I think that Gene Hackman does a really great job of giving us, again, that pulpy 1930s Lex Luthor who has a scheme that continuously reiterates the greatest scheme of our time from the greatest criminal mind of our time. He has no loss of ego and it's classic, you know, mustache twirling villainy, but it has a, a memorable kind of presence because it's gene hackman and it's because of the way that i think he reacts to superman the way he interacts with otis and the way he interacts with miss Tessmacher. it's just the way in which he brings that performance to life that i really enjoy yeah i like him a lot in the movie i, I wish that he had a better script to work with yeah for his character because i think that the way he plays the character would be a really great, slightly more serious Lex Luthor. He's hilarious, of course. He has a phenomenal cackle that is just memorable in every movie, and in, it works really well here. But he nails everything you want from Lex Luthor. He's eccentric, he's intelligent, he's maniacal, he's egotistical, he's comical. And ultimately, as smart as he is, figuring out how Clark got to Earth, discovering kryptonite you know, using this idea of a high pitched sound frequency to speak to Clark that only he could hear. That was awesome. I love that moment. Ultimately he wants to make money like most villains and it's a real estate scheme, you know, and, and that's what it's about for him. And I didn't love that part of it, but it makes sense in the way that we are portraying him. Um, that has nothing to do with Hackman himself, just the way that the character is portrayed to be honest with you, and it's funny because we're both referencing Smallville. This has me wanting to watch Smallville again. It, you know, it's a lot of these characters. I just find myself going, man, I like that character in Smallville. Man, I like that character in Smallville. Um, whether it's Lana Lane, actually, is probably my favorite love interest for Clark over Lois. And again, I, you're, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's a series. We had dozens of dozens of hours with these characters to get to know them and their relationships more than 10 minutes of screen time together, right? So when we have... Clark facing off against Lex in high school and Michael Rosenbaum, you know, and Tom Welling, we have a much different understanding of that relationship than we get in this movie between Clark and Lex. But 
for what it is and for how it fits in this story, you know, I think it's pretty good. I like that Donner, I don't know if it was on purpose. I think it had to be on purpose. There's like a green theme going on quite a bit of the time in Lex's uh, lair, his area. And even Tess's eyes at one point are almost like she's wearing bright green contacts. I wonder if there's some intentionality to that them thematically um, with the way that kryptonite would soon become an obsessive thing for him. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. There's the moment where he ends up putting the kryptonite around Clark's neck and putting him into a pool. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like straight out of BVS. Like, not out of BVS, obviously, but did BVS rip this from, you know, Superman 1? Because that's kind of what happens to Clark in Batman v Superman. So that was kind of a neat little connecting moment for me. Uh, you know, it is what it is, man. I, not to jump too far ahead, but like the, the problem with Lex for me in this movie is Otis. And it's not Lex's fault, but he has to play off of Otis. And Otis is the stupidest character we've got. And Otis really hampers this movie because he is such the campy henchman and it is an intentional thing. Like it's not like this is accidentally happening in a bad performance. Donner is wanting this guy to be camp, but he feels like he's in a movie. The rest of these people are not in and it, it doesn't work for me. It takes me out of it. And when Hackman is forced to interact with him in that manner, he comes off dumb, you know, like Otisburg, you know, like, I don't know, just it's ridiculous. And so when it's Hackman without Otis or not having to kind of play down to that level of camp, I think Hackman's wonderful when he has to play down to that. It's just like, OK, we're we're there. And it, yeah. it doesn't stand out for me. I can see that. And and that's a fair criticism. I on on his own, I think Otis is a. He's a funny character. I enjoy seeing his idiocy on screen but i can see the tonal shift as a microcosm of the frustration that i have with this going from drama to not campy but action adventure to back to drama what i think i find more forgiving of that is the fact that if otis existed in that five minutes i would really be frustrated because he has no place in that or even in the last part I forgive it more because of the fact that he's surrounded by scenes where you have Superman making superheroic dad jokes or doing things that are not necessarily as, quote, serious. So I won't forgive Otis for being there. I can definitely agree with the criticisms. He doesn't come across as annoying to me, but I probably admit that that's my sense of humor is I like somebody who's a dumb, dumb character. And that Otisburg scene just makes me laugh every time. So I'll just leave it at that. Well, that brings me to one more question that I have before we get into connecting points. And we've teetered around this a little bit, but I wanted to expand on this in our discussion. We have these modern day superhero movies and we live in a post MCU world now where for better or for worse, Marvel has defined what the origin story should look like. They've defined what the superhero story could be, should be, whatever. I completely love what DC is doing and what they're doing this next year, not in trying to compete with Marvel or be different, but to be DC because that's who they are. I'm excited about 2021. I'm excited about Zack Snyder's Justice League cut. I'm excited about the 
Flash coming out before I die. I'm excited about all these things with DC because of the fact that they're not trying to be anything more than who they are. But the fact is, just like we're in a a post-snap world from Infinity War, we are in a post-MCU world where we have kind of a baseline that's been set, starting with Iron Man. And it makes me wonder, in light of all that, how does the tone of Superman, particularly the back half of the movie, play for you? And what would make someone want to visit this film who grew up with the updated versions of the Man of Steel and the MCU in particular? Nothing once you've seen it once just to find out about it. I mean, that's I hate I'm not going to poop on your movie or your character because it's not bad. It's fine, but it's just fine. Yeah. And if given the choice, I'm going to rewatch Man of Steel every day. I'm going to go rewatch Smallville over Mm -hmm. this in a heartbeat because I don't think it has enough to offer at this point that is new. It's like watching a classic, man. It, It really is like for me. Classics are very hit or miss, and usually they're more miss than hit. I look at this list of movies that I haven't seen, and you know, every once in a while I'm going to see a Casablanca that I'm going to be like, yeah, okay, I get it. I understand why this is a masterpiece. But there's a lot of them, some of the old Kurosawa movies that are so highly regarded. I've seen some of them, and I've been like, okay, masterpiece. Other ones, I'm like, that's pretty good. Like I can see where Star Wars got that, 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 that from that, but I'd rather watch Star Wars over and over and over. Like, I don't want to watch that again. So it was cool to see the references. It was cool to see the iterations. I'm excited to go through this. I will probably keep going, even though we're not going to cover them. I would like to go ahead and just go through the whole thing, you know, and watch three and four afterwards to make sure that I've completed my cycle. But to be honest with you, without having anything driving me to go revisit them, I just don't see enough there that stands out now to make me want to go back to them. Um, So I super appreciate them have so much respect because I don't think we would have the world of superhero films that we have today look the same way if it wasn't for what Donner did. I mean, we owe this movie so much and, you know, Christopher Reeve as well, like as his performance that still holds up. Like maybe that's the answer, like is to go back and see Christopher Reeve, Again, but then he's not in 45 minutes of it. So it's like, do you really want to watch that just to get to him over and over? He technically is. His voice is actually in the first 45 minutes. They actually dubbed his voice over Jeff East, who played the young Clark Kent. That's really weird. Um, also, little little tidbit, all the stuff I'm getting from IMDb trivia, by the way. I'm not just a Superman, like, know it all or whatever. You shouldn't have given away. You should have. Look, play, I never play the wizard. I never lie, Lois. Oh I never my lie. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> He's also in the helicopter sequence. But I think it's, I want to say it's uh, just before the helicopter crashes or whatever. There's an air traffic controller that he voices oh, as, a, nice. as a little thing. So very cool yeah. stuff. So I also, see he we... was a big. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. I was going to say, he's also a big hang glider. So uh, a lot of the, the flying sequences, he was kind of point man for that to say oh, that's cool yeah but yeah so I, ultimately i think it's great to see once i think everybody should see it once if you're at all a comic book fan, fan comic book film fan because i think you need to see where it came from just like i just did essentially i think it's worth watching maybe a second time if you have kids to introduce to your kids to it but i just don't see a ton of value in it 
as a it's not a rewatchable for me i guess is basically what i would say but good movie yeah i i would i would agree and i think that's probably the best backhanded compliment you can give a movie like this because i do think of kurosawa i do think of seven samurai a movie that is probably two and a half hours longer than it needs to be for my taste but i can absolutely appreciate it for what it is and at the very least i think it's like it's when we look at art when we can appreciate where a piece of art comes from what it was inspired by and see the circumstances, the events, the season that surrounded that artist or what they were doing in order to inspire that painting, which then inspired something else, which then inspired something else. What we get is a refreshing take on something that we've grown to love. Look, I don't think I would appreciate Clark Kent in Smallville if I didn't see how Clark Kent came to become Clark Kent and the fact is Superman stories are better in different mediums there is a fantastic six issue limited series by Max Landis that I would encourage anybody to read called Superman American Alien each issue focuses on Clark at specific moments of his life one as a young boy one as a teenager one as a young adult and they're all drawn by different artists so you get a tone you get a style visually that is different from the one before it and part of what max landis is doing is he's saying we go through seasons as human beings as people that are going to be different but they're also going to be influenced by the seasons that came before and those seasons will influence those that come after and I think when we look at the iterations of Superman, I will not tell anybody that they have to see this series by any means to appreciate the Man of Steel, because I think that there are better interpretations, but there is an appreciation that I would encourage anybody to take on and to take two hours of their lives and at least at least watch the first two. Look, I, I, I have a heart love for the third one because it's campy in all of its glory. And it's probably the most, well, with the exception of four, it's probably the most second most disconnected from the first two movies by a long stretch. And I think that I would say if you're going to appreciate Superman, watch these first two movies. And it's okay if you don't like them because they are dated. There are special effects that are just not good. And that's fine. But I can look back at Kurosawa and Seven Samurai, and I can say, we need subtitles. We don't need subtitles. We need like an English track to go with this. And that's okay. As long as there's at least a level of appreciation, I can respect anybody who, who does that. So, yeah. Good job, Marvel. Thanks for doing that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, let's move into our connecting points. Aaron, why don't you start? Yeah, my connecting point is the major moment with Clark. Well, I say Clark, whatever. Superman and Lois and their flight. But really, it is the entirety of this. And I'm going to end it a little early because I think yours ties into this as well. But from the moment that he flies up on the balcony to be interviewed by her, we talked a little bit about that earlier and that scene and some of the dialogue there. And he's clearly showing an interest and clearly flirting with her. But this flight scene, I think, is unsurprisingly 
what I connected with the most because I like relationships and I like love and I want this for the character. And that's what the superhero can do is fly. And it's his major talent. And it's mixed in here with this beautiful romantic moment and even a bit of comedy and scares uh, for good measure. I've seen it referenced as the cloud ballet, which I think is a really neat way to put it. I love that Lois is allowing Clark to fly with her. She's putting her trust in him, which is a big deal. This is very much an Aladdin, I can show you the world moment, uh, minus the magic carpet is what I would compare it to. And we get this great thing where she begins talking to him. And, you know, this, this is the other part that honestly, I would see a lot of viewers these days maybe going, hey, this is campy because we get a voiceover and she's letting him read her mind. But this was really emotionally moving to me personally. She's talking about how she feels like a schoolgirl and is quivering and, and how she's holding hands with a god. And like these are the things, A, you probably wouldn't be talking that high up in the air. So realistically, you're not going to be having a conversation at this point. And you probably wouldn't want to be saying these things to the person anyway. It made me think about all the things that go through our heads when we're with someone that we're attracted to, especially in those early moments, those falling in love moments and those times where you're not even certain of the feelings that you have. And so these are the thoughts that are going through your head. And we're getting like a little peek into that at this point. And we, of course, know that Clark can read her mind. She doesn't necessarily know that. She's kind of on a whim thinking that. And then she ends it with some of the greatest words in this movie. She says, if you need a friend, I'm the one to fly to. If you need to be loved, here I am. And it's that last one specifically that gets me because we know that that's what Clark wants and what Clark will care about more than anything and what he will struggle with for his entire life. Like he wants her to be a friend. He wants her to love him. Look, he's already lost a pair of dads. He's spent his whole life being picked on, whether it's his young Clark or Clark at the Daily Planet. And I, I mean, he needs someone to love him. And I think that Lois is the way that he connects from his Kryptonian culture and self to his human self. And I think it's awesome. And it's just incredibly sweet. And I think that it sets up what I'm hoping will be a much deeper exploration of their relationship. This is another thing where if this was just a single movie, it would have incredible amount of value like I'm placing on it now, but it goes up if their relationship builds on this in the future, which is what I'm looking to see. And I'm quite sure it will. But this was the one that stuck out the most to me. And then I love that it leads to her coming up with the name Superman. Like she actually comes up with the name Superman. I did not know that. And I don't know if that's comic accurate or not. I don't care. It is the sweetest, coolest thing ever that she picks the name. Like, I don't know if I even just disconnected. Maybe this happens in Man of Steel some point. I don't even remember. But like the idea of where does that name come from has never really come into my head very much. I never it's just he's Superman. Like, of course, he's Superman. Like, like, that's what we call him because he's got an S. You know what I mean? But like for her to name him 
at least for me watching that happen after this moment, it was really impactful and meaningful uh, for someone that is wanting to be that person that is in his inner circle that he can trust, that he can feel safe with for her to name him. You and I care about the power of names. I just think that's a big deal. And so that whole scene, man, I just, I absolutely love it. I'm glad you did. And my connecting point comes just after that. He, they land the plane and she, she's getting ready or something happens. And the camera turns around where he flies off and then Clark comes in. It's a great, it's probably the best special effect in the movie is seeing Superman fly off and then the camera slowly pan where Clark then knocks on the door. He comes in, I think they're going to go out to eat or something, and he takes his glasses off and he says, Lois, there's something I have to tell you. Or there's something I want to tell you. Here's where I think the great performance lives in this moment where he is kind of keeled over and he kind of stretches himself up. He straightens his back. The glasses come off and it's that entire posture, Aaron. And this dude, this dude's ripped. Like he got in shape for this role. I think he's 220 or something, 225, something like that. And he tells her, he's, he wants to tell her this intimate thing. They've had this amazing moment in the sky and he brings her back. And then she comes out and he hesitates. And so we get kind of a tease. Oh my gosh, he's not going to tell her. He's not going to tell her. He puts the glasses on. He resumes that kind of keeled over posture and his voice goes up. I love seeing that distinction back to back, back and forth, where he makes a concerted effort to distinguish between these two characters. But also in that moment, I love seeing how both Clark and Superman are falling in love with Lois. Like they want to be with her. And the the scene ends with her saying something about like seeing her kind of get frazzled and being kind of in this world all of her own talking about Superman. And he, he, he doesn't break the fourth wall and I'm glad he doesn't, but it would be kind of cool if he did. He just kind of gets ready to open the door or, or go around it, and he just kind of looks and he grins. He was like, cool. And I, I think it's just great. It's a moment where it's you could translate it as if he's saying, I gotcha, but I don't think that's it. I think it's that he's going, she loves me too. At some point, I'm going to tell her the complete picture about me. Not yet, though. And I, I think it leaves us in a way that kind of pushes us to want that relationship more. We didn't talk about the ending much. Um, I don't like the ending. I mean, I didn't want her to die, but I don't like the whole <laughs> turn the earth back. I think that is a cop-out. I think that's a deus ex machina. And it definitely lessens my appreciation of their relationship. Fortunately, we get a second movie where that gets a little bit more involved and there there are some things in that story that have a lot more weight. But if we had this moment alone, the flights and then that post moment, I think that to me is quintessential of not only their relationship, but of what makes Superman as a property 
in terms of his relationship with other people. Uh, so great, specifically with Lois. So very cool. Very good stuff. Well, that will wrap up this edition of Feeling Film. We're going to go back to back with this Superverse next week, as we mentioned, and we're going to be covering the second entry of the franchise, aptly named Superman 2. The names back in the 70s and 80s were just so unique, right? So just prepare to kneel before Zod. Just giving you that. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.